Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. And today in this podcast, Andy is going to talk about contentment. But before we do that, we have this other thing that we'd like to do that we usually do. We have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Every time. It's just, it's starting to warm my heart every time I hear it now. Man, it's listener, become normal. I hope, I hope you love books and business because I love every time like, he says that. Like if I could take that vocal note and make it my text message sound when he texts me, it just... That would be beautiful. We can do that. And if you would like that, why don't you just email me? brother. Thinklings Podcast. You can just set, if you have Dr. Little's number in your phone, you can just have his ringtone, books and business. That would be so good. Books and business. I can even put a little catchy jingle to it. Anyway, hey, uh, let's talk about some books. So, Andy, what do you got? Okay, today I want to talk about a book by C.S. Lewis called A Grief Observed. So, C.S. Lewis, um, his wife died of cancer. And he wrote this book. It's a pretty raw book. And so who is this for? If you've gone through something really difficult or if you're going through something difficult, um, the nice thing about this book is that he's really un... He's not sugarcoating anything. He's, he's almost just putting emotions on the page in a very open way. At the end, though, he pulls back and he does say very helpful things about trusting in God. Um, but it is one of those books that if... It can be helpful to hear that. If you think about lamenting in the Bible, um, it's not always that you say, hey, it could be worse, or hey, it's not that bad, and look for the silver lining. It, it can be helpful to hear truth. Even even in a hard situation, it can be helpful to hear the truth. Uh, so anyways, I'd had a hard situation I was in, and a friend bought this for me and said it was good. And so I'm just going to read two sections uh, his wife died of cancer and his own mother died of cancer. And so here he has a section where he talks about cancer. It says cancer and cancer and cancer. My mother, my father, my wife. I wonder who's next in the queue. Yet herself, he's talking about his wife, dying of it and well knowing the fact, said that she had lost a great deal of her old horror at it. When the reality came, the name and the idea were in some degree disarmed. And up to a point I very nearly understood. This is important. One never meets just cancer or just war or just unhappiness or even just happiness. One only meets each hour or each moment that comes. All manner of ups and downs, many bad spots in our best times and many good ones in our worst, one never gets the total impact of what we call the thing itself. But we call it wrongly. The thing itself is simply all the ups and all the downs. The rest is a name or an idea. He has a, an interesting way of capturing what he's going through. And then I want to read one more section here. Uh, he says this. He's talking about when you're going through something really hard, and part of the way the book hinges is he's looking in the face of this horror, and then he's trying to say, is God still good? So it's a kind of a theodicy of sorts. He says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or its falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's very easy to say you believe a rope to be strong or sound as long as you are merely using it 
to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? And uh, having walked a similar path, uh, thankfully my path ended differently, you really are tested when you walk through something really, really difficult. And so I appreciated his perceptive thoughts there. So this isn't exactly like just pick it up and read it for fun. You can. Um, but if you're walking a dark path, this can be a book that could be nourishing and helpful. So I'd say on the thinking goodness scale, I mean, depending on your situation you're in, I'd say at least a six. It's not like the be-all, end-all books, but it's a pretty good one. So Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. That's a really uh, heavy topic, um, dealing with death. And um, the book that I actually chose is kind of the exact opposite. Uh, I have uh, Song of Songs by Jeffrey Johnson. I'm going to be teaching a class on the Song of Songs here pretty soon. How is, how is that the opposite? <laughs> well, Says the single man. <laughs> single in number. Love leads to life, Charlie. We are all going to die, but how do we conquer death? Through life. So in Song 8 5, it says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Set me a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's kind of interesting. How is love as strong as death? Because love is the source of life. But that's got really nothing to do with my book and my books and business that I brought here. Uh, Song of Songs by Jeffrey Johnson. The subtitle is The Greatest Lover. So I was a little skeptical when I first saw that subtitle, wondering what he would do with the Song of Songs. This is a new book that was uh, published in summer of 2020. So um, kind of wondered um, how or, or if an allegorical approach to the Song of Songs is something that's still written about and published. And the answer is yes. In fact, this one is an illustration of an allegorical approach to the Song of Songs. So when you say that, maybe like unpack, like what do you mean when you say an allegorical approach to the song? And like, because I feel most people are going to be in a zone where they maybe haven't heard anything other than that. If you know what I'm picking up, picking up, I'm putting down. Sure. So in Song of Songs, chapter one, verse two, it says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So the, the kissing that's, referred to here is physical kissing. The woman is doing the speaking and she desires the kisses of her husband. Um, and so Johnson in, in this book, he picks up on this idea of kissing. I'm just going to read a phrase. The kissing, he equates it to uh, like the kiss of kissing God's word and getting uh, to know God's word. All right. And, and so that would be an allegorical interpretation. There's not anything to do with your um, reading or meditation upon God's word exegetically in Song of Songs, chapter one, verse two. So like in intro to Bible study, we talk about allegory. It's non-literal interpreting the text. So like the text looks like one thing, but you say it really means something else. So like uh, Animal Farm by George Orwell, it's the story about all these animals, but it's actually about something else. Actually, that would be more of like an illustration. So like allegorically, you're saying Maybe it looks in- like one thing. But actually, there's a hidden meaning that you can't get directly from text. Is that what an allegory is? Like, is that what you mean mean it as? Animal Farm could even be an allegory. It's just it's intentionally written as an allegory. Yeah. 
this, I would contend, the Song of Songs was not intentionally written as an allegory. We're understanding it. We're interpreting it. We are interpreting it allegorically because we don't know how to handle some of the um, overt eroticism that's in the song. So, for example, he I'm going to read a little uh, paragraph here. If you are a child of God, you are part of the bride of Christ. Okay, that's exactly true. I'm not going to disagree with that statement. That's uh, a true statement from the New Testament, okay? There's nothing in the Song of Songs that's telling us that you're a child of God and part of the bride of Christ. Um, Song of Solomon's not talking about the church? I have my phone. I will throw it at you. <laughs> okay. We've never gotten a threat. We've gotten I'm, eye rolls, but I, never a I'm just going to declare to myself, I've lost speaking privileges for one minute. Okay, so Tim, back to you. So um, I'm going to start at the beginning of the paragraph again. If you are a child of God, you are part of the bride of Christ. And therefore, when you go to your prayer closet, and then he has in parenthetical, uh, parenthetical quotes, the bridal chamber. Okay, so the prayer closet is the bridal chamber. With Bible in hand, look up into the face of Jesus. Okay, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Our heavenly father, our heavenly bridegroom, I mean, because Jesus is the bridegroom, and say, you may kiss the bride. All right, so they've completely allegorized the thing. Uh, as the Bible study teacher, this is killing me. This is, this is great illustration material. Yes. Oh, that's, I got to steal this for class. Thank you. Very good point. Thank you. Point taken. How can you, sorry, I'm done. I'm done too. Well, how can you, I think the, uh, how can anyone say that their allegorical interpretation is more correct than another? Okay. One minute up. I'm back. I was, I was watching the timer. (laughs) That was great. No, but I just I, I I know this is not the content. This is not word, but but how can you make an allegorical claim that this is what it means and anyone else's allegory have less or more authority? So like, to, to like parse that? that out a little more, you're using a subjective means yes. to interpret. How would you objectively decide which subjective interpretation is correct? Yes. That's beautiful. You can't. Like you can't judge a subjective uh, interpretation by an objective standard. So you're subjectively judging a subjective interpretation. So when you treat the Bible that way, you're making your own ideas relative yes. to the reader. It sounds it, it, postmodern. Mr. Premodern, chiming right on in there. So, so Tim, your, like your field, number one, like you've re- read and written a lot on Song of Solomon. And this is your book that you're bringing. So, like, is this even hit the goodness scale at all? I mean, is this like not even on the scale, right? This okay. isn't even on the scale. The book he do, this is really common with the Song of Songs, where they do understand that there is a base interpretation, and the base interpretation is that it's speaking of eroticism, marital love. So he has this very uh, basic exegesis through the passage, but his application is completely the allegory. Okay. So he's completely stripped the Song of Songs for any applicable um, um, relevance for the church, which in my opinion is a complete travesty because this is an area where we, we need instruction. We're listening to the world because we have commentators and uh, speakers that are not teaching us uh, on matters of intimacy. So, Man, and also that's teaching you to handle the Bible 
poorly. Poorly, like that's just you know, it's, that's it's teaching you a bad interpretive method, and so you're going to get that wrong, and then you're going to get who knows what else in your Bible wrong also. Yeah, so maybe I'll just transition us to my book, which uh, is probably much more appropriate for the prayer closet. Um, so <laughs> what I've got here is it's it's actually kind of marketing genius by whoever published it, HarperCollins. Is it HarperCollins? Harper yeah. One. Is that difference in HarperCollins? That's their, like, I just got a book from them. It's their overall, it's like gotcha. over Zondervan and all that. So if you've seen these, like, really thin-leaf C.S. Lewis books— so you, you look at the title of this book, not the title, you look at the cover, very large at the top of the book, it says very clearly, C.S. Lewis. She's like, oh, it's a book on Lewis, but it's actually not. Lewis just wrote the foreword or the, the preface, whatever, introduction, and then he compiled it. What it is, is it's meant to be a 365-day kind of a devotional in, like, it's like a like a primer for George MacDonald. So what it is, is it's 365 selections that Lewis made. So in that sense, he's a compiler. He's not the author, which is why his name is in on the book in that fashion. But what he's doing is he's compiling these uh, portions of sermons or books or anything like that from MacDonald and trying to put them together in, in a very devotional way. And what, the way I got turned on to this was I found it in a in a uh, like a bibliography of someone who's writing about Lewis because there's actually some really important content in in the introduction that he wrote that pretty much every biographer of Lewis uses when they talk about the literary influences that Lewis had. So that's why I purchased this and I at the time really had no working knowledge or interest in George MacDonald, but as I started exploring Lewis, you find out that perhaps his favorite books were George MacDonald books. This George MacDonald was a was a German Christian. German? I want to say German, but it's not striking me as correct. But he he was a Christian in the 1800s, late 1800s, and he he was uh, an author, and he wrote pretty much everything across the board: short stories, fiction, nonfiction. Um, it's really funny. Lewis comments on his, he gets to these points of very, being very, uh, a very preachy author. And he's like, normally I wouldn't like that in my book, except for the fact that McDonald is a great preacher, you know, like in the way that he wrote. <laughs> he was Scottish. He was Scottish. Okay. Scottish. So I knew that yep. was wrong. I caught myself. But, um, so this is just selections of George McDonald and it gets, it kind of gets you entered into the sphere. And I'm just, I'm just going to read. I just started this. My goal is to use this in a devotional sense throughout the year. And uh, so I just started this. I'm going to read actually just number one. Okay. Uh, so it's called George MacDonald and Anthology. Number one is it, it's a paragraph and it's titled dryness. And this, again, it's, it's intended for spiritual stimulation. That man. And so the, uh, maybe I should put like quote, that man is perfect in faith who can come to God in the utter dearth of his feelings and desires, without a glow or an aspiration, with the weight of low thoughts, failures, neglects, and wandering forgetfulness, and say to him, Thou art my refuge. Mm. So what it what it, it's trying to poetically stimulate my thinking to what real faith looks like. Real faith is not perfection. It's not never forgetting. It's not... Uh, mm -hmm. being perfect. It's not having high thoughts all the time. It's someone who fails 
and still turns to trust God. And the first time I read that, because it's poetry, it's set in a poetic setting. The first time I heard it, I was like, well, hold on. I had to go back and I read it again slower. I'm like, oh, that's what he's saying. And it, and it, it impacted me. It's like, okay, that, that's me. Okay, I, I, I don't have to come to God in perfection. I just have to come and I have to trust him. And he loves me and he knows me better than maybe I know myself. Well, not maybe. He does know me better than I know myself. <laughs> and, and, and so, just again, it's just these short little devotional thoughts from George McDonald. Um, if you're looking for something, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan and you want to read what he read and you want to kind of get into the, you know, start dipping the toe into George McDonald as a uh, 1800s Christian author, I would highly recommend this. This is C.S. Lewis, George McDonald. So, yeah. Goodness scale. Goodness scale. I mean, it's. I'm only just a few days in for the introduction and what it teaches you about Lewis's thoughts on goodness and holiness, and as it kind of lays a backdrop for the book Surprised by Joy. Just for that information alone, it's got to be like a seven. I can't comment yet on the full content of McDonald's works in it, but just the first few, everyone I've read has been re- really good. It's it's been it's helping me understand and think through topics. And so, I mean, it's, it's definitely good. Uh, I'll give it a five for now and then we'll come back to it. Maybe another time once I, maybe at the end of the year. Kind of interesting. You guys are both recommending Lewis titles. Well, Hey, I helped our listener out because I told him a book not to read. Right. That's good. Hey, Hey, that's what we need. This to know. is not a Lewis title. It's a George McDonald title. <laughs> yeah, but the publisher oh was very uh, willing to stick his name in bright yep. and bold on it because they know what actually sells. So just to your point, though, just to, it is it is good. Like, you learn from reading good authors, but there is something you learn from experiencing what you just did. So I, I, I appreciate that. Well, today I want to talk about contentment. Uh, this is one of those virtues that is difficult to come by in our current age. Every time you see like a burger commercial, it's just, it's screaming at you. It's trying to get your heart to desire that thing. And it's not just to sell the burger, although, well, it is just to sell the burger actually. But it's it's not just to show you, hey, isn't this burger look good? Wouldn't you like this burger? Uh, the way it's selling it to you is by saying, don't you think your life would be better? You'd have the good life if you had this burger. So anyways, I'm going to marry this little topic with a Bible study principle. Because that's what I like to talk about. So I'm going to go to Philippians chapter 4, and we're starting verse 10. And we're just going to walk through a couple of verses. We're just tell you right now, we're going to talk about Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, it's a very common verse, very popular verse. Um, usually when you see that verse, you're going to see it. And I'm not trying to pick. I, I, this is, I, I understand why this happens. I'm not trying to get super snarky or snooty. But most people think of it as the, the verse that you see on a lot of athletic uh, events, or um, if you're going to do something very hard and you're scared, you're going to make it a shirt or something. And so the idea here is, that I'm just read the verse, it says, um, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's ESV. If you read New King James, King James says, through Christ who strengthens me. Um, the way that's applied is you can then win, you can succeed, you can uh, you know, you can do whatever you want, but the intended meaning is what I want to ask about. So is it true that I could jump over a mountain, a literal mountain, if Christ strengthened me? 
Absolutely. Of course I could, because God is eternal, he's omniscient, and he's omnipotent. He can do his all power. So of course he could strengthen me to do that. So that's not the that's not the question. We're talking about this. We are not talking about the character of God. Can he do something? Can he not do something? What I want to know is when he inspired Paul to write this verse, is that what he intended Paul to communicate to the Philippian readers? So let's start in verse 10. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to sort out authorial intent yet again, being an important principle of Bible study. We're going to also point out that you need to know the context. But what's helpful is that when you really understand what this verse is aiming at, it's actually aiming at contentment. And I did not know that for a long time. So I'm going to start in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. I'm going to pause here. The church at Philippi had wanted to help Paul out. He's in prison right now under house arrest. When you're in house arrest, you obviously can't make money and people need to bring you food. And so the church at Philippi had been concerned for him, but they did not have opportunity to help him. Uh, But it goes on to say that something must have changed, and so they were able to send a gift. They sent Epaphroditus, and they were to help him. So he was in need, and the church came through in providing for his needs. All right, verse 11. Now, he's very thankful. He's telling him he's thankful for what the gift was that they sent. And then he says, just so they understand, verse 11, not that I am now speaking of being in need. And that's a funny thing for a man under house arrest to say. He's saying, I'm not really in need right now. Of course he's in need. He's under house arrest. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any food. He's dependent on handouts. And he's saying, I'm not really in need. So it's interesting that he stops and clarifies that with the Philippians. And he says this, he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So here he is in prison with hardly anything that he needs, and he has learned to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. If anyone had been brought low, it would have been Paul. I mean, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he got knocked off a horse, blinded, converted to Christ. And how many times had he gone through horrible situations as he took the gospel in his missionary journeys? So he knew that from experience, how to be brought low. Then he says, and I know how to abound. That means like you're abundant, you're overflowing, you have plenty of riches, you have plenty of things you need. He says this, he says, in any and every circumstance, think about your circumstance today. Like what's your circumstance like? Paul, whatever it was, Paul said he had learned in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, it's really interesting. I understand the difficulty of facing hunger. Well, I mean, if you looked at me, you wouldn't think that. <laughs> but but you know what I'm saying, like not much. He says the, the facing plenty and of hunger, abundance and of need. Now, I can understand why you would say facing hunger and facing need. It's something difficult. It's a trial. But who thinks of plenty? And abundance as being something you need to learn to face. Um, well, I have a friend who's well off, and uh, we were talking one day, and he said, you know, people who don't have money think, you know, I've got all this money, and so it must be pretty easy. He says, but until you've had it, you don't understand that doesn't take away all your problems, and sometimes it actually can draw you away from God. Now, he, he is not to say that it just because you have money, that doesn't mean it, but he's saying when you don't have money, you think this is what would make my situation, it would change my circumstance, and I would have what I want. And the people who have received that said that actually doesn't happen. 
So Paul is saying the problem he's experiencing, or, or excuse me, the situation he's in is he knows how to face a situation where he has plenty of money or plenty of things he needs, and he knows how to face a situation where he has very meager to no resources. What is it that allows him to be content in either of those and any other situation? The ability to be content comes through Christ who strengthens him. So it, it, it just occurred to me that often when we think of contentment, we think our circumstance is off. I wish I had a better car. I wish I had a better job. I wish that whatever it is, and we fixate on the circumstance. We think, man, if I just had my change in my circumstance, then I would be content. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that if um, even if he has nothing, he has actually learned to be content in that. And how does that happen? It comes through Christ. So I think that's very helpful. Um, and I think that today in our culture, that's not what's promoted. So this was a helpful thought for me. Do you guys have any thoughts on the topic of contentment you want to dive in with? I thought it was interesting in verse 10, uh, he talks about they did care, but they lacked opportunity. Mm-hmm. That just kind of was um, something that, that just struck me about how, you know, I don't know, at least in America, it's like we do care for people, but we have a very, we're in a very self-sufficient culture and it's like, there's not that opportunity. And then the opportunities to demonstrate love are often coming from people we don't really even know. And they're often a little deceitful or whatever. But anyway, that's a different conversation. But the opportunity was the aspect that kind of connected uh, with me as you work through that. Good. There's another tie-in. Um, if you go to Proverbs chapter 3, actually, Dr. Little, you'll love this because it's the Old Testament, man. Uh, so I was working through this in a sermon recently, and it says in verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching. Uh, let your heart keep my commandments. Now, he says forget there. I really doubt he's talking about memory. I think what he's saying is obedience, and that's why the second part of that verse says, Let your heart keep my commandments. So what will it do to you if you do that? For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. It's interesting. How do you add length to a day? See, it's inter- it, 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 you look at those three phrases, length of days, years of life, and peace, they will add. And the commentators that I were reading was saying, this is like a very satisfying life. Now, how do you get satisfaction? How do you get days that feel full and long? How do you get years that feel full of life? And how do you get a peace that like follows you around? You get it through obedience. And often contentment, we're not content. And so we disobey to try to satisfy the contentment. But what is the Bible saying here? Obey. And that's the path to satisfaction and contentment. Yeah, that's great. You know, speaking of the Old Testament truths about contentment, my, my, you got me into the Old Testament. So anyway, um, the the example I think of is Abraham and then even Solomon, okay? But when it talks about Abraham and it talks about how he died, he died content. And so um, it's actually something I've thought about and thinking through, working through a biblical theology of death and how to die and how to die content. 
Uh, so contentment's a major theme within uh, the Old Testament scriptures. And the book of Ecclesiastes is all about, I think Charlie wants to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was surprised that you said Abraham first. I thought you were going to go right. You, you did say Solomon. And that that's, I mean, ultimately, I think what the book of Ecclesiastes is intended to teach about is uh, joy in life and how how you find joy is to be content. Joy is not, I'm like Solomon and I have all the great things. I mean, think of, just think for a moment, because I interact with young men at the college all the time, and I'm going to use a very sophisticated theological term here. I see them get affected in this way all the time. Twitterpated. <laughs> I mean, it has nothing to do with social media, but it has everything to do with that girl's dorm over there. And guys just get convinced. They get convinced that to be happy, I've got to have the right girl. Oh. And goodness gracious, he had Solomon. He had 700 wives. And he, chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, I mean, he had everything he wanted. Mm. Everything he wanted. And he says, I hated life. And it wasn't until he realized and learned contentment. Like, this is what God has given me. And my favorite verse in the book of Ecclesiastes, I've already talked about this, but Ecclesiastes 3.14, it is contentment. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken. God has done it that people fear him. That, that's contentment. God has been sovereign, and he's had a, a wonderful purpose that I would learn to worship him. And if that is my greatest desire, is, okay, God, what is your plan here? How do I worship you? How do I love you? And I, I learn to be content in his perfect plan. Life gets really fun. But when I'm so concerned about you know, read chapter Ecclesiastes 2, like 1 through 10, when I'm so concerned about all of my stuff going on and I don't think about the Lord and, and I'm letting my own desires drive me, I'm, I'm not content, but I'm searching for what I don't have, the exact opposite of contentment, it destroys my life. So. It's, it's like we have a list of things coming up here about how to find contentment. In Philippians, we see that you find contentment through Christ. You're, you, he strengthens you, you submit to him. In F Proverbs 3, verse 1, how are you finding satisfaction, what's going to make you content? Uh, you find it by obedience. But you also, there's another one here that's really great. Uh, verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 3 says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Okay, so the whole book is about being wise. So it's funny that it says don't be wise, but it's wise in your own eyes. Well, what's that look like? Next part of the verse Fear the Lord. So if you're being wise in your own eyes, you must not be fearing the Lord. And turn away from evil. Again, obedience and turning to the Lord in fear and love of God, that's what you need to do. Now, what does it do? It will be healing to your flesh, which literally it's the word navel. It's like your belly button. So I guess if you have an infection, you know, this is what you need. I'm just kidding. But here's the point. It's, why would he say that? And then it says refreshment to your bones. Well, where are those? Your belly button's like the center top to bottom. Your bones are like inside of you. So you will be refreshed. Does that sound like something of contentment? Does that sound like the content life? Yeah. And so I think here, what's the avenue to contentment to get there? It's not being wise and fearing the Lord. Obedience. Christ. Ecclesiastes is saying you're not looking at your situation and your circumstances. Yeah, and, and maybe just to wrap this up, is just think through, th this is not a scattered biblical topic. This is a well-represented uh, biblical topic. And I think you can do it chronologically. You can see it very well chronologically. 
So just think through the timeline of God's people, like you know, Abraham, he forms a nation, Israel, and then Israel goes in and out of the promised land, you know, handful of times, Christ comes, church starts, and we're awaiting the end, okay? Where does contentment fit into that? Job. Most consider him to be in the time of Abraham, very early chronologically. Let me just read a verse to you. He has everything taken from him. Everything. His family's dead. His, his possessions are ripped from him. Job arose, Job 1.20, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. That is contentment. Amen. God, you're sovereign. You're in control. I can bless you no matter what. That's early, early, okay, right in the middle. Uh, okay, let's come back. We'll end with the middle. You go to the very, towards the end, you go to 1 Timothy, okay? And, and Paul is referencing to Timothy. Look what he says. But godliness with contentment mm. is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Who's he quoting right there? Oh, he's quoting Job. He's quoting Job. That's so good. If we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harm, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And this is, oh, for they lo the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and be careful to observe and pierced themselves with many pangs. Think of Solomon. He loved his possessions and he was actually doing the harm to himself. His own desire was driving the sword into his heart. He hated life because he lived his own life. So 1 Timothy, contentment. Job, very early, contentment. You go right in the middle. There's this book that you probably have never read, Lamentations. And Jeremiah has preached to a nation of Israel who rejected God's word, and they're taken away. And he's literally watched Jerusalem be destroyed, God's city. He's watched the temple be ransacked. And there's this really famous verse right in the middle of Lamentation that get, gets put on so many mugs and paintings. Guys, what is that verse? It's 323, Lamentations 323. Which right says... Something about a portion, which is a key word in well, Ecclesiastes. You jumped the... Nobody knows it for that. What do they know it for? <laughs> the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. But right before that, he does say, or I can't remember if it's before or after, he says, the Lord is my portion. And that word portion is very important in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is searching for his prophet. And when he learns contentment, he realizes, even if I don't get what I want, God always has given me the portion. And here's Jeremiah saying, guess what? Everything's gone, but I still have the portion. Well, Jeremiah, what's your portion? The Lord. Everything is taken from me in this moment, and I still have him, just like Job. And it's, contentment is all throughout the scriptures, and it really is the key to, to a joyful life. So... Food for thought there. So just think, look at yourself. Am, am I content with where God has me, what he's done in my life, or am I living, searching for something that I don't currently have? 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.